1: It's Monday, February 25th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash Minds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So this episode is a version of our Up to Date, where we talk about the science and the news that caught our eye. So what caught your eye this week, Kishore?
2: Well, do you want the good news or the bad news?
1: Uh, I'm always bad news first.
2: Okay, well, bad news first. Uh, Let's talk about 2020. And no, I'm not going to talk about politics for once. There's a big (laughs) survey that uh, takes place in 2020. Do you know what I'm referring to?
1: Uh, Census?
2: Yeah, that's right. The census happens in 2020. Uh, And this is important because we do the census for a, a lot of reasons. We do it for a lot of electoral reasons here in the U.S., but we also functionally do it just to understand how many people are physically here in the United States. And that drives a lot of of our public policy in terms of like services we order, uh, services we we sort of provide in certain areas, our understanding of how the country is changing over time it has a huge impact. But let me ask you this: When do you think the last time is that we surveyed non humans in a census like environment, um, specifically insects?
1: <laughs> Never.
2: Yeah, that's pretty much true. Uh, You might have seen a lot of news outlets report in the last couple weeks that there is a great insect decline happening, whereas 40% of insect populations across the earth are expected to disappear in the next uh, twenty to thirty years. I mean, that is a staggering number. There are a lot of insects on the <laughs> on this planet, and just to put it in context, there are more species of ladybugs out there than there are species of mammals. Like there are a lot of insects out there, and this uh the study which came out, which was a review study of seventy three different studies, in in terms of of studies that have looked at insect decline, uh, made this giant claim that we're seeing two and a half percent loss in insect mass per year, Uh, and that's how they projected out this 40% loss over time. But we need to dig into that, because a number of of entomologists came out and said, hey, wait a minute, how do we actually know (laughs) that number? And what ended up happening is they said, you know, we don't really have a census for insects, so we don't have a baseline to say, here's how much insect loss is occurring. So th- there's this really interesting parallel tract here. There's both really staggering data uh, pointing to habitat loss and in- increased use of pesticides driving down populations of particular insects, but we don't have a baseline to know how much they're actually driving it down. And so the analysis is really complicated, but there are some bad news results. Which uh-huh. way do you want your bad news first?
1: Uh, I guess just hit, hit me with it.
2: Okay. So first and foremost is that insects are declining. And while these 73 studies that were surveyed tend to be in, in Northern hemispheres, like in, um, in heavily populated areas, not at the equator where there's the strongest sort of prevalence of insects, what they're seeing is that decline is not happening equally Uh, Across the insect kingdom, they're seeing declines in bees and ants and beetles, which means that there are other insects that aren't declining in the same way, which are the less fun insects like wasps and roaches and uh, mosquitoes. mosquitoes, Yes. Uh, And so there's this interesting thing they're seeing in some of the data in in terms of the decline, because it's not uniform. As it sort of uh, proceeds up the, the food chain, that means there are certain animals that depend on the species that are declining, that are in a slightly more risk than others. And at the same time, we're also probably going to see increase of swarms of other insects now that they are not competing for resources with the insects that are in decline. Uh, so we got some biblical stuff coming our way, I think, uh, so is, if is you this read like this. Story.
1: More evidence that like nice guys finish last, like the wasps <laughs> are going to gonna win, but the bees are going to lose out.
2: Maybe. I mean, like I said, we don't have a baseline here, so we're sort of kind of hand waving this. But I think the overarching analysis is that we we are seeing a decline in insect species. And And our best explanation for it is loss of habitat and increased use of pesticides. And there isn't a whole lot we can do about it. It just sort of is a callback to Elizabeth Colbert's uh, incredible book, The Sixth Mass Extinction, about how we're entering this incredible period uh, where we're seeing uh, species die off at an alarming rate. And insects are not immune to that. And uh, in fact, they may be a bellwether for us, uh, signaling larger declines across the animal kingdom.
1: Well, maybe this is, again, a time to rethink the whole gene drive thing. <laughs> like maybe it's, a you know, maybe we need to make it easier for the bees by getting rid of the wasps. I don't know. I disagree. I think about that.
2: <laughs> no, no, I'm fine getting rid of all mosquitoes and then dealing with the ramifications of that.
1: But not wasps. You draw, the line, wasps. Wasps. draw
2: <laughs> the line at wasps. I draw the line at wasps. I think there are too many cool parasitic wasp videos out there to support that decline.
1: All right. Well, speaking of more bad news and declines, um, do you know when the Earth's last major greenhouse warming event happened?
2: Uh, I don't know. I I would guess maybe like a hundred thousand years ago.
1: Um, fifty-six million years ago, <laughs> it was the. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, uh, and, and apparently that was the, warming glo- the last sort of major global warming event uh, that we know about, 56 million years ago. And it turns out that if we continue at the current rate, uh, and if carbon emissions continue to rise, as they have been, um, the total amount of carbon dioxide in you know in the atmosphere is going to equal the amount released during the PETM event somewhere around 2160. So hey, if you, th- that's you're not that s- far away.
2: That's not far away. You're making it sound all bad. 56 million years ago. That's like near the end of the dinosaur era, right? It Couldn't <laughs> yeah. have been that bad.
1: I've <laughs> yeah. seen Jurassic
2: Park. That sounds nice.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, obviously we don't know what the consequences will be of this particular uh, event, but the fact that it's coming up in about 140 years I mean, that's like, and that's not our lifetime, although much to my dismay, you know, I'm, I'm always the kind of person that wishes I could live forever. And, and the next thing I'm going to talk about, maybe it will get us there a little closer. But, uh, but it's certainly within possibly the lifetime of like the grandchildren of our children. And, you know, somewhere around uh, four generations from now, uh, those individuals are going to be living long enough to essentially live in a time where there is a uh, a carbon level in the atmosphere that matches what we know was the last major greenhouse event 56 million years ago
2: so part of what has been concerning for me it's like you know even when you tell me hey we are uh changing uh to the point where we're going to be equivalent to 56 million years ago i have a hard time wrapping my head around that time scale um and what that (laughs) means I, what is more alarming to me is how quickly we're going from uh, we're moving towards that change because we're yeah. talking about going from like eighteen eighties to uh, you know twenty one sixty that like span of less than two hundred years uh, we're making that change happen.
1: Yeah. And, and let me tell you a little bit of what the consequences were of the last major global warming event. So this is the event that seemed to be uh, responsible for a major extinction of organisms, um, especially in the deep ocean uh, that that were you know part of the uh, marine ecosystem. Um, animals that were on land got a lot smaller, and they migrated north to cooler climates. And in that environment, Uh, a group of modern mammals appeared, uh, including primates. So here's what's a possibility. This next global warming event gets rid of the current large mammals like uh, us, and maybe a whole new group of mammals that are uh, smaller or more adapted to a warmer climate emerge. And so maybe uh, somewhere in the next few million years, we're going to live in a very different planet of the apes.
2: At least it's all based in Canada, though, so I could get around, <laughs> I could wrap my head around that.
1: But no, 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 no. Have you been in Canada in the summertime, especially in the north when the mosquitoes hit? If <laughs> It can't get worse.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of bugs that emerge um, from the thaw. I mean, it's this misnomer. I was watching um, one of those uh, great David Attenborough specials about the Arctic, and there's this, you know, misnomer. It's like it's freezing cold it's sort of devoid of life. But in the, in that accelerated period where there is this thaw, all the creatures that remain are trying to like reproduce, um, uh, fight for resources. So there's this like incredible boom of life in this really concentrated period of time. And one of the things they pointed to is like, there's so many insects just everywhere. Mm
0: -hmm. They just
2: emerge. (laughs) And that's why there's birds. And that's why, you know, um, and the, and there's fish and there's all this other stuff that emerges. So I know what you're talking about. Like, there'll be like a plague of life um, emerging in these kind of tighter windows, uh, which I guess makes Canada sound less attractive for once.
1: Yeah, especially in the absence of any amphibians, <laughs> uh, because <you> know, <laughs> they, they're pretty vulnerable. This show is all about going straight to the source for answers to all of our curiosities. And that's what The Great Courses is all about, too. Their in-depth digital video courses are all presented by top-notch experts who are so knowledgeable and fascinating to watch. These courses are yours to keep forever, and you can learn completely on your schedule. I had a great time partnering with The Great Courses to create the course, Brain Myths Exploded, Lessons from Neuroscience. In this course, we explore some of the most fundamental misconceptions about the human brain, like, is digital media really making us less smart? Are animals as conscious as other humans? And can brain games really make us smarter? So much more too. My favorite part about this course is not that we're essentially debunking myths that are perpetuated out there, but that the truth is always so much more interesting and we get to learn a lot more about our own minds. The Great Courses is giving listeners a special limited time offer. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's over $200 in savings. And you can start enjoying it today. This fantastic offer is only available at thegreatcourses.com/minds. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com/minds. That's thegreatcourses.com/minds. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp online counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash minds. But there is some good news, which is that maybe you and I uh, could potentially live to see this big event. And that is coming from research that was published in Communications Biology from Cedars Sinai. So you know, I'm a big fan of ways in which we can prolong our life, but keep our brains intact, right? Like, I don't want to be 150 years old if I can't, you know, use my cognitive abilities. And you might remember that there is some work out there that if you surgically attach two mice to each other, a young one and an old one, and you let them share blood, the old mouse benefits, right, that it starts to become rejuvenated. So there's this idea that there's something in young blood uh, that keeps us young and can sort of uh, reverse the, the signs of aging in older people. This is, you know, something that um, has been super exciting in the kind of uh, aging research. So in this, uh, but we haven't really known what it is. What's the mechanism by which young blood can um, prevent cognitive decline and and you know can make uh, old mice seem younger uh, until this study came out. So in this study, the uh, authors actually transplanted the bone marrow of young mice, mice that were about four months old, into mice that were about eighteen months old, which is pretty old in the mouse lifespan, uh, and they compared that to mice that got bone marrow from their uh, peers. So 18-month-old bone marrows put into 18-month-old mice. Uh, And they found that, sure enough, the old mice that got the four-month-old bone marrow actually did a lot better on tests of learning and memory. Um, And in particular, it seems to affect the hippocampus, which was, uh, you know, one of my favorite structures in the brain that supports new learning. And what they found was that um, a type of cell... Uh, that supports uh, the health of neurons and is uh, essentially uh, activated by blood cells in the bone marrow called microglia. Um, these are support cells in in the um, central nervous system uh, that they actually seem to be uh, The the reason why these older mice are doing better when they have young blood. So here's how it works. Essentially, these microglia are part of the brain's immune system. And um, as you get older, there is a tendency for microglia to become overactive. And when they're overactive, what they do is they disconnect cells. So they actually reduce the number of synapses, especially in places like the hippocampus. Well, it turns out that if you inject uh, this bone marrow, the animals have fewer of these overactive microglia, and so their synapses in the hippocampus in particular seem to survive and last longer. So they have more connections that they can make uh, in the cells in their hippocampus than their old counterparts that either have old bone marrow or no transplant at all.
2: How are they actually tracking what's changing with this this marrow being uh, transplanted?
1: yeah so there are different cells that are found in um sort of the choroid plexus, which is the part of the um, brain where cerebrospinal fluid is generated um, and in the benin- min- and in the meninges. and so we've've we've sort of known that parabiosis, which is a sense of sharing blood, you know, can affect um, the different amounts of cells and different receptors for those cells um, uh, uh, in in the brain. And so for example, there is a Um, particular type uh, of cell called the CCL11. Uh, and it looks like that they're, they're looking specifically at that particular uh, cell type and its receptors. And it seems to be involved in synaptic pruning, which is this um, notion of deactivating synapses or connections between neurons. Uh, so they seem to be getting really quite down to the nitty gritty and the nuts and bolts of how this works. Uh, and it's pretty exciting that they understand, you know, this level, um, you know, of the mechanism by which parabiosis might be effective, there's a downside, though, which is that, you know, bone marrow transplants, uh, you know, are challenging across humans. Um, that doesn't seem to be that, you know, you can't just like, you know, take any human bone marrow and transplant it into any person. So um, there's going to have to be some personalization of the bone marrow. And, uh, and so I think that that's kind of where the problem might not be something that is going to be helpful to you and me. (laughs) Um, But maybe in the future, we're going to get to a place where, you know, when you're young, you actually bank a bunch of bone marrow cells. um, So that as you get older, you can continue to have injections put in I don't know, I kind of like have this vision of some kind of farm in New Mexico where you go and you like bank yourselves and then, you know, you return every 10 years to get a new injection of bone marrow. Uh, We're still quite far away from that.
2: Well, we are. We aren't because like at the same time you're mentioning this, this is so timely. The FDA this week came out with a recommendation, a really strong recommendation to stop buying young blood from private companies offering them as pseudocytes. Did you hear about this at all?
1: Yeah. And, you know, again, this is I think this is a result of how compelling some of these findings are. And yet, like, you know, and how much desire there is by people to uh, use this. But of course, we're just not there yet to be able to um, figure out how to do this safely and effectively in humans.
2: Yeah. Of, and, of, and of course, we're not, because like most of this research that you're pointing at, um, while I subscribe to that, that vision you have is really just still trying to figure out the basic biology of aging. For the most part, uh, and is really not connected to any sort of treatment regimen, but this whole class of of companies and and hucksters uh, have emerged uh, offering like young blood or, or you probably heard plasma infusions uh, that a lot of athletes get, and not in this country they'll they'll go to um, Europe or Mexico to get these treatments. Uh, that supposedly have this sort of de aging effect, and the FDA highlighted um, a couple companies. Uh, there's one called Ambrosia uh, that was selling a liter of blood for eight thousand um, dollars, and that um, it, it, there are other companies that were promoting the idea of these these sort of blood treatments to uh, uh, to deal with the effects of like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, like real just complete. Uh, uh, snake oil and uh, they came out with a strong statement and they're going to try to uh, crack down on these groups but it's really hard to because most of the a lot of them exist outside of the United States so uh, this is one of those times when there's this incredibly promising research right really nascent research points to some fundamental understanding but it spawned this pseudoscience world uh, of quick cures and snake oils
1: Yeah, and yet there are, you know, already uh, uh, studies undergoing um, in clinical trials looking at using, you know, transfusions of young plasma for patients who uh, have Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, so so I think that that, you know, in that way, it is kind of exciting because for for in Alzheimer's disease, where specifically, you know, medial temporal lobe cells are affected, that's, you know, where one of the first areas where the, the disease strikes. Um, and, you know, we used to think, well, you know, you have to regenerate those cells, but maybe you don't, maybe it's just a matter of like reducing the amount of synaptic pruning that's happening. You know, I do think that it's exciting uh, in those populations. But I agree with you that, you know, already, this is going to be the kind of thing where, you know, you're going to have a lot of uh, uh, sort of snake oil salesmen pop up that are just gonna be like, hey, yeah, we've got some young blood for you just sit right here in this chair and feel young and again
2: eight thousand dollars a liter you could probably make a quick buck eight thousand dollars that's a <laughs> yeah i mean incredible you know, it amount seems more, of money
1: more lucrative and less less sort of invasive than donating your eggs you know if you're if you're yeah. a woman trying to get through college i remember being you know you've had all these advertisements about like sell your eggs um well here it's just like give some blood but you know Maybe that's, and given the rising costs of college, that might be a totally viable thing for college students to do.
2: (laughs) Well, I have a better science experiment for people to try at home uh, than uh, collecting their young blood for sale. You've probably seen this. It's sort of taken over the internet because a paper came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this week talking about microwaving grapes. And I'm so happy that it came out. Uh, A number of videos uh, related to this paper have come out. Um, there's this effect, uh, and I have broken microwaves to prove uh, that this effect is real, that when you put a, a grape that you have, um, and but leave a little skin connecting the halves, and you stick it in the microwave, and you nuke it, what happens is, is there's energy created and eventually forms a plasma, and you'll see an arc actually happen from one half of the grape to the other. It's this incredibly um, uh, visible experiment that you can do in your microwave that leaves, uh, that's really, it's just spectacular to look at. Uh, and it also leaves this kind of smoky grape smell, which, uh, sounds nice, but it is really terrible and hard to get out of the <laughs> microwave. Um, anyways, researchers for a long time have been curious about this, uh, about what's going on. And most of the theories I- involve like somehow, uh, because grapes are made of water and they're, uh, they also have an index of refraction that the microwaves are sort of bouncing around inside the grape and kind of heating it from the outside in like you would any food that you stick in the microwave. Uh, and for whatever reason, the grape has the right conditions to kind of get superheated, and that's what's creating the plasma. Well, these researchers are actually using a variety of methods from uh, some from uh, high-speed cameras to thermal imaging. I actually tracked this down and found the weirdest e- effect. Um, there are these it really intense electromagnetic uh, hotspots being generated from the microwave being stuck in the grate. But what was key is in order to get this sort of effect where there's so much superheating that a plasma generates and you get this arcing effect, uh, you needed to have um, this area uh, between grapes, whether it's a half grape or just two grapes sort of smashed together, um, where it sort of concentrated uh, those microwaves sort of being stuck actually in between the grapes themselves, so they would sort of refract inside the grapes and then bounce bounce out and hit the other the other grape and bounce in between the space, the microscopic space between them and concentrate. And it would heat up the edges so much that you would get this plasma formation and then you would get this spectacular arc. And so it was just incredible that they found um, this, uh, uh, this, uh, these standing waves uh, existing uh, in the grape. And it was a combination of effects that it was essentially, wasn't just the shape of the grape, but it was also the space between them, but also the, the kind of makeup of the grape created this perfect kind of refraction that would create the standing wave inside of a microwave. So you can do this with other materials that mimic the grape behavior. They did they did this with uh, those uh, Orbeez balls, like the ones that y- you stick in water and they kind of swell up. Uh, they're able to recreate the effect. Uh, but it's just a lot more fun to do it, two grapes side by side in your microwave.
1: So does anyone know, like, who is the first person who microwaved two grapes?
2: I have was it a I physicist who's looking knows. for this. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows. My favorite thing is that uh, they destroyed so many microwaves as part of this <laughs> experiment, uh, and they acknowledge it in the paper, which I think is one of the funniest footnotes you'll ever find in a, in a paper. But this is one of those you can definitely try at home. Just don't do it in your built in microwave.
1: Okay, see, well, we <laughs> pretty we, we went from really bad news to, hey, something that might prolong our, our cognitive function to a fun experiment at home. <laughs> so that's it for another episode of Inquiring Minds. And I want to thank you for joining us. I also want to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stephen Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds, where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Andree Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indrevis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Kish. See you next week.
1: Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today.